Thank you for tuning in to the Expository Word Podcast, where we are listening to classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. I do not mean that we stop with just our wretchedness. I mean we admit it, and then we rejoice in the grace of God to forgive us. You are never beyond the grace of God. You are never beyond His love as long as you are willing to repent. Today, Kimber continues teaching through the book of Samuel, and our hope is that you will be challenged and encouraged by listening in. Let's turn now to Kimber. Last week, we did a verse-by-verse study making comments on every verse in this chapter. Both this morning and tonight, there is so much. In fact, point number one blew up in my face. You know what that is? What that means is, I I believe as I was preaching on it, it just became so alive that we just got stuck on point one, so there was a a lot of extra points to cover now. I want us then to see, and if if you haven't been caught up with this whole text, I'll explain it in just a minute. We'll just do a quick summary of the chapter, but I want you to notice particularly verses 22 and 23. Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you as king. Our Father in Heaven, we make this short prayer to You now. Please, by the Holy Spirit, speak to us from the Scriptures. In Jesus' name, Amen. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, the story goes like this. Samuel is the prophet. Saul is the king. One day, Samuel comes to Saul and says, The Lord spoke to me, and you have a special mission. Really, what's that? The mission is that you're supposed to go wipe out the Amalekites. You see, 300 years earlier, the Amalekites had attacked Israel when they were coming up out of Egypt, and they had particularly attacked the the, the tired people that were straggled out, and some throng of two million people, and they had murdered and and attacked and been very, very uh, terrible in their treatment of the Israelites. God said, then I'm going to remember what you did. And so now, 300 years later, he says, Saul, go there and fight them. I'm going to give you into their hands, wipe them out. But the command was this. The command was, wipe them out, man, woman, and child, and all of the animals take no spoils. I want them wiped off the face of the earth. Which, by the way, led us to point one of last week, which is really all we covered, and that is the God of the Bible is a God of wrath and of vengeance. Now, if you don't like that, if that bothers you, if, if somehow uh, you don't understand where I got that, well, I'm telling you, we, we, I only want to get into it because we covered it last week. But you can get the tape and listen to it or read it yourself. But I, I, but I have to make this comment, at least, that... It's in the Bible. It's true. God tells one people to wipe out another, and that's God's will. Now, you may struggle with that, but last, night, last week we gave some reasons for all of that and, and to help you understand biblical Christianity and who God really is according to the Scriptures. And He's a wonderful God who hates sin, and there's a time when He gets fed up with it when people won't repent. Now, the story goes on, though, like this. Saul goes, and he attacks the, the Amalekites, and just as he gets there, he finds the Kenites, and he says, tell the Kenites, hey, you Kenites, get out of there, because you were allies to Israel, and they all leave. And he attacks them, and he wipes them out, he kills everybody, except Saul and the people kept Agag the king, and the best of the sheep and the cattle alive. Well, Saul's so pumped, the men are so pumped, they're having a big party, Saul sets up a monument in his honor in Carmel, not Carmel, Indiana, not Mount Carmel, but in a place called Carmel. 
And while he's there setting up this monument, he's marching around. Meanwhile, the scene shifts back in verse 10 to Samuel. And Samuel is in his prophet's chambers at night. The Lord comes to him and says, I am sick of this. I'm grieved. I wish I would have never made Saul king. Oh, and Saul was troubled. His heart burned. The scripture said it was on fire. And he cried out to God all night. And you see the contrast, by the way. Saul's all excited, building monuments unto himself. Samuel and the Lord are grieved with what Saul has done. Samuel gets up in the morning, tries to find Saul, finally does. And when he finds Saul, Samuel looks up, or Saul looks up at Samuel and goes, Lord, bless you, Sammy. I've done it, baby. We won. And Samuel goes, you want to know what the Lord thinks? And Saul goes, what? He says, you've rebelled against him. You've sinned. Da, 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 da. And to which Saul says, did not. And Samuel says, did. And Saul says, did not. And Samuel says, did. And that goes on for about seven or eight verses like that. All right? That's the quick version. <laughs> Finally, Samuel says, look, to obey is better than sacrifice. Don't tell me, bathing. Don't tell me that you kept those animals for religious purposes. Don't tell me that. And then Samuel's all worried because he's going to lose the favor. He's going to lose his political power and his prestige. And he says, oh, please go back with me in front of the people. And Samuel says no. And Samuel turns to leave and Saul impulsively grabs him and it tears his robe. And Saul looks at him and says, the Lord's torn the kingdom away from you. Well, then Saul wasn't done. Old man Saul, Samuel says, where's the sword? And old Samuel walks up to Agag, and Agag is standing there very confidently, feeling the bitterness of death is past. Surely they're not going to slay me now if they haven't yet. And Samuel, old man Samuel, slays Agag to pieces. And then a very sad commentary. For the next 15 years, Samuel and Saul lived 10 miles apart, and they never saw each other again. Very significant. The word of the Lord has been withdrawn from Saul. So if last week we talked about the God of the Bible as the God of wrath and vengeance, if you really want to know something, to be exegetically precise, that was not the main point of the Scriptures here. The main point of 1 Samuel 15 is this. Are you ready? Do you want to know what the Holy Spirit intended for you to get when you read through 1 Samuel 15? I really believe this to be accurate, and that's my job as a preacher is to preach it to you. Here's what he meant. Nothing can substitute for a disobedient life in this passage, we get a look at God's perspective of sin. Again, look at verses 22 and 23. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. Now, everybody look at 23. Rebellion is like the sin of divination. That's witchcraft. Idolat arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, He's rejected you as king. My friends, in America, the church doesn't want to hear this. I know, and many of you have told me, that I, my, one of my constant themes is the obedient life. I have to say that I think it's so clear in the Scriptures that this is so essential. If you want to know how you, as a believer, redeemed, how you, with Christ living in you, if you want to know how you can bring delight to the heart of God, I must tell you it is by submissive obedience to His revealed Word. You can memorize the Word of God. You can preach the Word of God. You can sing the Word of God. You can write books about the Word of God. You can lead Bible studies. You can attend great Bible conferences. You can be friends with famous Christians. You can be wealthy and successful. You can speak in tongues. You can win at Bible trivia. You can fight against abortion. You may know some deep insight to theology that others don't know, and you're always praying that others would come up to your level. You may have all of that. 
You may even support conservative politics. You may do everything that you think is Christian, and yet the whole time, you can still grieve the heart of the Almighty God by living in disobedience. The Egyptians had a proverb concerning this, verses 22 and 23, and it went like this. More acceptable is the character of one upright in heart than the ox of the evildoer. You see? More acceptable is the heart of the man who obeys than just offering an ox. The Berleberg Bible translates verses 22 and 23 like this. Listen carefully. In sacrifices, a man offers only the strange flesh of irrational animals, whereas in obedience, he offers his own will, which is rational or spiritual worship. You see that? God says, look at don't come to me with your own will not submissive to me and you offer some animal. That doesn't make me delight. What delights is, and by the way, he doesn't say the animal the sacrifices doesn't delight him. He says, it just doesn't delight me when your heart isn't obedient. You see, friends, if you look at verse 23 again, look at it again. Rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft, divination. Arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Do you understand, everybody? Listen, Christian America. Listen to this church. Listen. Not to obey God's word means something a little more than we first think. It's not just a mistake. It's not just a failure to hear correctly. It's not just a misunderstanding. The text says this. Here's what God said. Listen. It's as rebellious as witchcraft. Now, here's a businessman living in the north side of Indianapolis, and he, he considers himself to be rather good. And yet, when it comes to paying his taxes, he's a little cheats here, a little there, even though the Bible says, be honest, the false balance is an abomination of the Lord. He knows that, but he thinks, you know, but I can give more money. I can do some religious good if... I just, you know, cut the corners. And by the way, everyone does this. And he would never picture of himself out with a group of witches worshiping the devil. But in fact, my friend, when you disregard the clear teachings of God's Word, it is the same as if you were a witch. That's what the Scripture says. Or how about this? To be arrogant is idolatry. Look at that. Look what it says. The next part of verse 23. Arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. You may think, how could that be arrogance? Here's what's arrogance. You, a believer, have God's Word. He says, this is the way, walk ye in it. And you go, you know what, God? I know a little bit more than you do. It doesn't make logical, rational, or religious sense for me to give up these sheep and these animals. I'm going to go ahead and keep them, even though you told me not to. You know what that is? That is nothing other than sheer prideful arrogance. Do you know why? You're saying the commandment of God is beneath you. You know better given the circumstances. It's like witchcraft. It's like idolatry. Look at verse 23 at the very end. You have rejected God. To reject God's word is to reject God. You know what the Hebrew word says there? You've despised God's word. You despise God when you disobey his word. It's to be faithless. Have you thought biblically about sin, everybody? Did you know that God doesn't want your worship if you're unwilling to acknowledge your sin? Listen, listen now to the scriptures. Just like, this is, this is just the scriptures. I'm going to read them to you. Listen. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. The Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked. The Lord is far from the wicked. If anyone turns a deaf ear to the law, even his prayers are detestable. In fact, I want you to see something right out of the words of the prophets. Look at this. Isaiah says in chapter 1, God speaking to Israel. The prophets speak in the first person. God is speaking directly to his people. Now watch this. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. 
Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Don't come to me with your worship when you're living like you're living. God says through the prophet Amos. And by the way, I love these guys. Isaiah, Amos. You know why? Because people say, you know, sometimes, Kim, you're really hard on us and you're sort of negative and all that. I read this and I go, thank you, there's somebody else like that. I don't want to be negative in the sense of harsh and unloving. I won't explain that, I'll just read it, all right? I hate, you know who's quoting here? Is this Amos speaking? This is God speaking. God says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I hate, I despise your religious feasts, I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, going by the law, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I'll have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. The Almighty wants you to know this morning that to come and to be all excited about worshiping God when there is sin in your heart and you're not doing anything about it is unacceptable. By the way, I've got to make one comment. You know this passage of Amos that I just quoted? When he says, I hate and I despise. He says, stop singing, turn off the harps, you know, do all that. Can I tell you that in Israel at that time, you had to get there an hour early to get a seat. The place was jammed. We've got to be so careful to think, well, if, if the church is full, that must be the Holy Spirit doing something. doesn't necessarily mean that. God says, I can't stand it. And the place was jam-packed. Now, Back to this, nothing can substitute for a disobedient life. Do you see that? Now, friends, let me tell you what I'm running into. If I mentioned this to you last week, just listen to me one more time. I'm running into things like this. These are true stories. You'll never know who these people are, but this happens a lot. People hold grudges against other Christians. They bear evil attitudes Every time they get a chance, they're talking about somebody in a negative, bad light. They're unforgiving in what they're doing. And they think all is fine. They talk about some Christian ministry they're going to undertake. They're talking about how God's going to bless them here and God's going to bless them there and look what they're going to do to help the cause of God. And they're all taken up in their ministry doing all of the things they're, they're doing. And I want to tell you, the Lord Himself, who they say they're serving, says, if you go to worship Me and you remember while you're worshiping Me that you and your brother, there's something between you and your brother, put the gift on the altar, stop your worship, go get it straight with your brother before you come back to worship Me. The Lord Himself taught that. And somehow it's all just acceptable. No, you know, it's all right. Well, friends, listen. God doesn't want our money. God doesn't want some ministry. God doesn't want some activity. God wants our hearts. And the greatest way to know whether or not He's got your heart is this. Is your heart submissive to the Lord's Word? Some of you like to use this terminology. Let Christ live in you and not yourself. Okay, let's use that terminology. I'll go with it. It's found in Galatians 2.20. I guarantee you this. You want to know what it is? You want to know what the Lord's will is? Do you know what it is to let the Lord live in you? It's this, my friends. He Himself said, I always do the will of Him who sent me. Obedience. Look at verse 22. Look at the word delight. Mark that word delight. Just focus on it a second. Verse 22. See it? Delight. 
does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, to heathen the fat of rams. My friends, think about this. Stop and think a minute about the purpose in life that you have as a believer. When you as a believer oh, simply obey God's Word in regards to temptation of some sort, in regards to honesty, in regards to being faithful in your marriage, in regards to, to, to raising your kids according to Proverbs and other Scriptures, in regards to whatever. When you take those steps of obedience, even in the mundane housewives, your home, your kids mess the diaper again. You, you get the call at school and the other girl at school is sick. And you, and you, and, and you, and you just get the, the laundry, you look and it's growing. It's growing while it sits there. And all of these things happen. And you're just going through the mundane. You know what? When you are faithful to obey God and to realize there's purpose in life and even in the smallest things, stop and think. The Creator that made the stars and the sky and the oceans of the world and the, the great Creator delights in it. When we obey Him, He takes great delight. He is greatly pleased. Oh, friends, I'll tell you, that asks this question, that leads to this question. Why is obedience so pleasurable and why is disobedience so miserable? You know why? Because obedience to the Word of God is the ultimate test of your faith. If you really have faith, it means this, you believe God's Word above your own feelings or circumstances. That's what that means. You believe God's Word. It answers this question ultimately. Who's in control? You going to do your own way or Christ and His way? Whose will will be obeyed? Your will or His? You see, we've got to face it. To go our own way, to disobey, or disobey the Scriptures is to rebel against God. To go God's way is to be subject to Him, to submit to Him, and to do what is best for God. And of course, that would mean what's best for ourselves. So you may look at this like I did, and you go, you know what, I, Kimber, you know, and, and this is, I told you last Sunday in this service in particular, I just was brokenhearted. I was brokenhearted over this fact. I have never so identified with anybody in the Scriptures as I did with Saul. I look at Saul and he compromises, he blame shifts, he rationalizes. I just sit there and I look at him, well, that's me. But I want you to see something. And that is, first off, you may look and you go, what was so bad? You know, he killed most of them. But if you, if you get it, if you get it, you know, he killed everybody but Agag and he, they just, they just kept a few sheep. He did most of it. Can't he get credit like 85% and he didn't have a C plus or something? But I want you to get a closer look at Saul. Let's go through this text carefully. You can just look at your Bibles, look up here and follow along if you'd like. Look at it. He's commanded to wipe them out. In verses 8 and 9 it says, but Saul and the soldiers were unwilling to completely destroy. You see that? They were unwilling. Mark that word, unwilling. You see, that's the true situation. We're unwilling. Charles Swindoll has a great article called Can't or Won't. He says, I won't allow people in my church to say, I can't do this, I can't do that. He goes, I make them say the truth. I won't do this, I won't do that. Because we're unwilling to obey. Now watch this. He has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Here's God's perspective. He was unwilling to hear. He's turned away. You see, you can't live in sin and stay in neutral. You can't go, you know, I'm going to disobey, but I'm going to hang on to God. Come on, Lord, I'm going to pull you along with me. To take God's word and to say, I'm not going to live that way, is to be unwilling and is to turn away from Him. You're turning from God. Look, he set up a monument in his own honor. He has disobeyed God's word. He congratulates himself. I feel like making a comment. I'm not sure if this is right to make it because it's going to come across a little sarcastic. 
But can I tell you, I know of Christians disobeying God's word and their Christian group encourages them in it. Maybe that didn't sound too I withdrew a little from the vengeance that was in my heart as I felt on that point. But I got to just tell you, we can't let ourselves set up monuments in our own honor and say, you know, I've just suffered for the Lord. When you're not suffering from the Lord, you're disobeying God's word. He has a defiled conscience. He says, hey, Sammy, I've done it. He hadn't done it. His conscience is defiled. Look, he blame shifts. Oh, the people, the people, the people, they did it. Look down to verse 15 again. Your God. He's still, you start to see the exclusion. He's excluded from God. He doesn't say our God. He says your God. Look at down at verse 17. He's proud. He says, when you were small in your own eyes. Look, he blames, shifts, and rationalizes. His repentance is shallow. He's afraid of man. He admits it even. He's afraid of man. So at a closer look, suddenly you start to see that it's not quite what we thought. Now, with that in mind, I want you to notice something. Look again at what the Scriptures say. I keep throwing them at you to make a point. It's undeniable. I hope you see it. I hope you're getting it. Look. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Hey, good question. Good question. What should I do? I'm going to come to church and worship now. What should I do? Huh? Look. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? What are you going to do? Do you want to come worship God? How can you? Okay, let's look. Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old, remember this is an Old Testament man writing. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? I'll bring thousands. Hey, imagine showing up for church, you know, the church back in those days, you showed up and you had a ram under your arm. You come up, there's a thousand of them in line. I'm going to sacrifice them all. I'm really going to please them. Is that what he wants? The blood's going to flow, flow, flow. So you can, you can sing it. I'm going to do it. Now watch. With 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? I'll really get serious. I'm going to get it. To show you how dedicated I am, I'm going to offer my firstborn. You know, this still goes on. There's tribes where the Indians would take their, their, their firstborn baby and throw them in the river, and if it lives, then it's some, it means something. If it doesn't live, it doesn't mean sitting something else, and I don't think they ever live. Shall I offer my firstborn the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now look, here's the answer. No, no, no. All that kind of stuff is the works of the flesh. Here's what God wants. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Here's what He wants. To act justly. To love mercy. To walk humbly with your God. Jesus Christ makes the same comment. I know you've seen it a million times. I don't think you can escape this. The only people trying to escape these words that I know of are Christian people. Unsafe people don't struggle with this. They realize that would be right. But Christians struggle here. I'm not sure why. If you love me, you'll obey what I command. You can say all you want. I love you, I love you, I love you. You don't obey. You prove that you don't love him. Look here. This is love for God, says John. To obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. That's love for God, to obey his commands. You see, obedience is not a work of the flesh that somehow you, you, you earn some merit with God. No, obedience is a response of a heart that is submitted to Christ. Now, that leads us to a very important third point, which I want you to see. And just remember now, we're applying 1 Samuel 15. We've already worked through the text, and if you weren't here, you may be missing a little bit from it. It won't make quite as much sense. But I want you to see, he's a God of wrath. Nothing can substitute for a disobedient life. And watch this. Warning! Warning! You can feel fine when in reality you are not. This so coincides with two. Two and three go together. 
But I want you to look at verse 13 again, everybody. Watch this. Verse 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Now, everybody, look at That's Saul's perspective. Now, you want to get God's perspective? Go back to verse 10 and look what it says. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king. He has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all night. God is grieved. Samuel's troubled. And look at Saul in verse 13. In verse 12, he sets up a monument. In verse 13, here comes Sammy, or Samuel walking up. He goes, Sammy, baby, I've done it. Come on, man, join the party. I want you to tell you something. God was grieved and Samuel was grieved. But listen, Saul was pumped. He was up, feeling great. In fact, things couldn't be much better from his perspective. Think of this from Saul's perspective. He had just had a great victory. He had gained back the confidence of the nation. Remember in 1 Samuel 14, he had lost it because they wouldn't kill Jonathan. He'd lost the morale of the men. He had just finished a monument in his own honor. There was a huge celebration party going on. By the way, they were. They were showing off their sheep. There was, whoop, there was whooping and cheering that they had won. They were shoving old King Agag around through the streets naked with a crown of thorns probably beating him. And Samuel is, and Saul is going, man, these people love me. I've got a monument in my honor. Look at this. I can't wait for my great-grandkids. They're going to go, what's that? That's, a, that's great-granddaddy Saul. He whipped the Amalekites. Boy, he was a great man. And he's thinking thoughts like that. You know, how we would be. No different than you and me, right? And that just goes to show you, friends, that your feelings can be deceitful. You don't see any contrite heart. You don't see anything but just total confidence. Hey, Sam, come on, man. I've done it. You know, Saul is like the guy in the insurance company advertisement. I saw one time in a barbershop. I laughed out loud. I usually don't laugh at those kind of things, but I did. And it was a guy sitting on the beach with a lemonade in his hand and an umbrella in his cup. It was a beautiful sunny day. The waves were rolling in. He was just sitting back totally enjoying his vacation. Right behind him was a huge cliff about 100, 200 feet high. And there's a guy about 75 yards away and you can just tell the question was, what's your life insurance company's name? And the reason for that is what this guy sitting there holding the drink in his hand, joining the sunshine, didn't know is that a truck had missed the curve up above, had gone off the cliff, and was about the huge semi-truck was about to land on him. And he's sitting there going, uh, Northwest Mutual, why do you ask? That was the answer. With the drink in his hand like this. Why do you ask? Just a split second later, he's going to be gone. I thought that was a little more humorous than you guys did, but I will tell you. The, the, the point is, that's how Saul is here. Saul's sitting around going, hey man, everything's fine. And it's not fine. And often Christians are going around saying this, you know, everything seems to be fine, but it's not. Let me give you another illustration. You're going 70 miles an hour on 465 right out here. And as you're traveling 70 miles an hour, you, you're, you're, you've turned your favorite station on and your favorite song is playing and you're singing along with it. And you're bombing along 70 miles an hour and suddenly you come up on one, one of those rises and sitting right there in the section is a police car and immediately all at once, your heart starts to pound, your blood pressure goes up, your eyes look in the rearview mirror, your foot comes off the pedal, you try to, you're wondering if you can hit the brakes without him seeing the lights come on. You're, you're doing all of that at once. Now i got this question to ask you. Were you guilty the whole time? You were guilty the whole time. You were going 70 in the 55. So you were feeling fine and you were just as guilty as when you saw the policeman. You know, friends, I know enough about the human heart, and, the, and the, the, I don't know it thoroughly, but I know enough about it to tell you 
that we do what Saul did, and you know what that is? Interpret our circumstances. You've lived in disobedience, you've done what you know is wrong, and then you go like this, "Uh uh-oh, and all of a sudden you get a letter in the mail and it's good news. And you pick up the phone and it's good news. And you talk to a friend and it's more good news. And you're sitting around there thinking, and pretty soon your heart starts to rationalize, and instead of dealing with that sin, you start going like this, you know, maybe that one slipped by heaven somehow, it didn't get counted. After all, God knows how tired I was. And so you go, you know, uh, he under, uh, maybe that didn't, you know, because what you're expecting is I'm going to get this judgment. And so pretty soon you, you've convinced yourself, well, maybe it wasn't sin after all. That's what Saul did. Saul looked around and he said, look at the sheep, look at the cattle, look at Agag, look at the spoils. Maybe, oh, this is, look at the men, they love me. This is great. Life couldn't be better. He was totally deceived. Life couldn't be worse. What could be worse than to have the Almighty God grieved over you? What could be worse than to be called a rebel? What could be worse than to be called a witch? What could be worse than to be called by God arrogant? That leads to a very important question, friends. Listen to this, watch. If you minimize sin and guilt, biblical Christianity makes no sense. You see this? If you're new to this church, this may rock you. You may go, wow. That doesn't seem right. Because the sum and bonum of all churches is this. I want to go to a church that makes me feel good. I want to go to a place in which I feel good. I want to leave there feeling good. Can I tell you, we better be so careful. What is the purpose and the goal? That we just feel good? Well, there's one sense in which I understand it. If feeling good means this, you're convicted by the Word of God being preached in such a way that your heart is going, I am guilty, I am guilty. And and as you're listening, you may not be going like this in front of everybody, but you're sitting there, your, your heart is going, Oh Christ, forgive me. I repent of what I have done. I have been wrong. Then you should live feeling good. You should leave feeling good. But to be in some kind of sin and come to church and be going through the motions and to come under, uh, and, and, and then to be t- told that everything's fine, God loves you just the way you are, don't worry. That's not right. That isn't right. In fact, listen, everyone talks about being loving and unloving. And shouldn't, isn't love the, 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 the greatest thing of the Christian life? Yes, but my friends, would you please listen to me a second? It isn't loving. It isn't loving. It is not loving for you to go to church, be in your sin, and someone to tell you you're all right. That is not loving. Loving is to be confronted with the Scriptures so that you can change. Saul never repented. He never repented. You look through this chapter carefully, you will see that even when he tries to change, it's only because he wants to look good in front of the people. And there is no hope, there's no change for us until we're ready to say we're guilty. Listen, this is a faithful saying, worthy of full acceptance, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The whole point of Christianity is that we're guilty and there is wonderful, overwhelming joy and refreshment that comes to the repentant heart. I've said to some close friends recently, I wish every day of my life I could sincerely repent. I wish that with all my heart. Because the grace of God, the work of Christ, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is never sweeter, never fresher, never better than when you have freshly repented. There is nothing that makes, makes the love of God so wonderful. And you see why, how mixed up we are? We sit around going like this. We, we sit around in the church today making, isn't the love of God great? Isn't the love of God great? And everyone goes, yeah, I know it's supposed to be great. I mean, he's God. It's supposed to be great. But I don't quite, but quite frankly, we say, you know, I don't really get it. I mean, you know, I mean, we're, we're not really sinners anymore. We've all got excuses. 
So I, I guess it's just sort of a big, gloopy, gloppy love that just sort of splats on you when you walk by or something. I mean, what is it? What is this love? But when all of a sudden, now look at the difference, all of a sudden the heart is convicted by sin. And suddenly the person says, oh, I am so guilty. I have violated God's Word. I've grieved His heart. I've done wrong. And that person turns and says, oh, I, am so, I can't save myself. Religion won't do it. I can't save Now, I'm not just talking about non-Christians becoming Christians. I'm talking about Christians. When the Christian goes, oh, I have been so wrong. Please forgive me. Then suddenly the love of Christ means something very much. It's the greatest thing. You can't get over it. But as Dr. Carl Menninger said, listen, in all the laments and the reproaches made by our seers and the prophets, one misses any mentions of sin these days. A word which used to be a veritable watchword of the prophets, it was once, it was a word once in everyone's mind, but now rarely if ever heard. Does that mean that no sin is involved in all our troubles? Sin with a capital I in the middle? Is no one any longer guilty of anything? Guilty perhaps of a sin that could be repented and repaired and atoned for? It is only that so, is it, is it only that someone may be stupid or sick or criminal or asleep? Wrong things are being done, we know. Tears are being sown in the wheat fields at night. But is no one responsible, no one answerable for these acts? Anxiety and depression we all acknowledge, and even vague guilt feelings, but has no one committed sins anymore? Where indeed did sin go? What became of it? Tell you, it may sound, you may think, boy, this guy's radical. I want you to know, friends, here's what's at stake. The glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a fool, he's a monkey, if he died and we aren't guilty of sin. Christianity only makes sense when you see the grace of God towards sinners. And to minimize it is to minimize Jesus Christ Himself. And all friends, I do not mean, I do not mean in any way whatsoever that we walk around the whole time, and this is the, the greatest thing in the Christian life, is just to go around, look at me, I'm just a wretch, look at me. That is not what I mean. I do not mean that we stop with just our wretchedness. I mean we admit it, and then we rejoice in the grace of God to forgive us. I want to encourage you as your pastor, and I know this in my own heart too much. I wish I wasn't so familiar with it. It's much better to struggle through repentance than to be like Saul. I would much rather see you grievous and struggling with the fact that you're a sinner and you, and even as a Christian, why is it you still do these things and you struggle with that and you want more of Christ and less of yourself? I would much rather see that struggle than I would to be like Saul. Hey baby, everything's good! Please don't become that way. You see, to me, Saul in this passage is a picture of the American church happy and building monuments to itself when it should be mourning. The Holy Spirit's job, according to Jesus, is to convict us of sin. People, I hear all this talk about the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, like a river, and all this. And it's all fine and great, and I know. But can I tell you? You won't have love, joy, peace like a river until there's been deep conviction of the Holy Spirit about your sin. A.W. Tozer said on his sermon on revival, greatest advice I can give is to do a thorough job of repenting. 
And my, may I encourage you, as your pastor, that you are never beyond hope. You are never beyond the grace of God. You are never beyond His love as long as you are willing to repent. No matter what you have done, and I said it last week, I say it to you again, I, I know what it is. I know. I know what it is to have to say, God, here I am again. I'm embarrassed to bring this up. But I must say, here again is what I have done. Oh, would you please forgive me? I'll tell you, the greatest way to change your marriage in an instant is for somebody in your household to get a repentant heart. Because suddenly a dose of humility will come in and this tension between people will start to separate. Everything has changed. As Samuel Burroughs said, the only thing I'm going to miss about heaven is the sweet refreshing that comes from repenting. You say, how are you getting all this out of this passage, Kim? Well, it makes sense to me. What's wrong with you guys? I hope you see it. But it, it's this, and I'll be done. I want you to see this in conclusion. The difference between Saul and David. Those of you that know your Bibles, who sinned the most, Saul or David? David. We're getting ready to start him. Chapter 16 is David. That's where we're getting ready to go. The man after the heart of God, Saul. I mean, David's not nearly as bad as Saul. But what was the difference? Well, look here. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul says, not me, the people, not me, the people, not me, the people, not me, the people. And then he finally says, look, okay, it was me, but, but, but make me look good, man. This is going to be terrible for politics. You see, for Saul, sin was one thing, politics was another. But now watch. David. He cuts Saul's garment one day when Saul's in using the bathroom in the cave. David sneaks up, Saul had disrobed, gone to use the bathroom. Saul didn't know David was in there. Saul was looking for David to kill him. He cuts off a part of his garment. After Saul goes down the hill and away, David stands up and he's, he's smitten in his heart that he had touched the Lord's anointed. Over a little sin like that. In Psalm 51, oh God, he cries out, be merciful to me. In Psalm 32, listen to what he says. He says, how blessed it is to have your sins forgiven. How wonderful, how joyous, how privileged you are if your sins are forgiven. He goes, let me tell you my story. I sinned greatly and I kept quiet. I didn't acknowledge it to God. And I want you to know, friends, that when I didn't acknowledge that to God, my life was terrible. Oh, every day my life was terrible. But then I acknowledged my sin and He forgave me. All becomes new. Then I'll teach transgressors thy ways. What hope, what refreshment. And you know something? If you're under conviction right now, I would like to tell you, as a pastor that loves you, that your life can change when you're ready to own up to the fact that the problem with the world is you and not anybody else. It is so terrible to be a victim. Oh, you're a victim. Everyone else has done you wrong. Poor you. And you just sit back and go, isn't it terrible? Look what they've all done. When is someone going to treat me right? You'll just stay there forever. But when you can say, it is me, Lord, my sin, my rotten attitude, my pharisaical heart, and even if someone has done something against you that is completely unjustifiable, I want you to know you dwell on it long enough and you become a Pharisee. Because I've been a Pharisee. And then you need to repent of that and ask God to cleanse you and to make you whole. And I want to offer you today, there is a fresh start no matter where you are, no matter how dark your days are, no matter how miserable it seems. I'm not offering myself and I'm not offering a philosophy. I'm offering the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform you if you repent. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, 
we pray to you for your great mercy. We praise you. We ask, Lord, that the freshness of the love of Christ, the tremendous awe that we're staggered with when we realize how faithful and merciful you are, would sweep over the people in this room. Teach us about this. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And that concludes today's expository word. Please join us again for more classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Take care.